We'll begin at verse 1. Romans 7, 1 to 13. Our study is 7, 7 to 13. Sin became alive and I died. (coughs) Verse 1. Or do you not know, brethren, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives? For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning the husband. So then, if while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law, so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we might bear fruit for God. For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions, which were aroused by the law, were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. But now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the Spirit and not in oldness of the letter. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to no sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. And I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, Sin became alive, and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. For sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. So then, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? May it never be. Rather, it was sin in order that it might be shown to be sin by effecting my death through that which is good, and uh, that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. Amen. Let's pray. Our Lord, we're grateful for your word. We're grateful for the reminders that we've just read of how sin did produce death in us, And yet now we belong to a new husband, a new master, a new Lord. And we pray, Lord, that we will walk faithfully keeping your word, keeping your holy, righteous, and good commandments. Teach us, Lord, this difference and cause us, Lord, to be built up in the faith because of it. In the name of Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. In verses 1 to 6, he taught us that we used to have a husband a master, a ruler over us, who uh, that was sin. And that sin, now we are released from it and we belong to a new husband. And that new husband, husband is Christ. So now with this new husband, we bear fruit to God, not bearing fruit for death, not rotten and evil fruit to death, but now for God and which is producing life in us. We produce the fruit of the Spirit, the newness of the Spirit. He continues this contrast between 
the sin that's present in us and the law, its relationship to the law. And a key verse is verse 9, sin became alive and I died. To properly understand this section, verses 7 to 13, we have to understand the proper relationship between our sin and the law of God. What is to be blamed? Who is to be blamed? Is it the law of God to be blamed because of sin in our life or death in our life, evil in our life? Or is sin in us to be blamed for the evil and the death that's in our life? He answers that by saying it is sin in us. It's not the law of God. It's nothing in God. It's all in us. We are guilty. We are culpable. We deserve the wrath and condemnation of God. The old nature does. Not, um, not God at all. He continues that line of thinking because there are people who think the opposite. They want to blame God, find fault with God, not blame themselves, not own up to their own sins, not own up to their own guilt. They don't want to do that. They deflect and justify their actions. But here he says we can't do that. Verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. Firstly, we understand and notice that the Apostle Paul, in Romans and elsewhere, he is a master at discussion and debate. He is a master at uh, rational thinking and logic. He understands theologically what is true and right, and he uses that as a platform to refute error. But also, he anticipates the error or the heresies, the false doctrine of his hearers and readers. He anticipates it, and he argues against it before it can take root, before it can prosper. He argues against it. This is his approach. Notice in verse 7, he says, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? He knows that the wicked, the old nature, Satan, and the world think that way. They think that whatever is in God's word, whatever is God's law, there is something deficient in it because it's not good for me. I don't like it. Therefore, I have to attack that rather than attack my own sin. People do so. And he understands it. Is the law sin? So is it sin? Is it sin? Is there something deficient, weak, irresponsible, guilty, evil in the law of God? The unbeliever thinks yes. The wicked think yes. The unrepentant sinner says yes. It is sinful. It is evil. It is weak. It's not good for me. It might be good for God, but it's not good for me. They want to disown it completely. They consider it sin. But the apostle first answers in the negative. He diametrically opposes it by saying, may it never be. Meaning that thought should never come to our mind. Anybody who thinks that, anybody who even presumes to announce it and then to live that way, shame on them. That's what, really what he's saying. May it never be. You should never even think or speak or behave that way. That you think that there is something wrong in the law of God. Actually, we all do that at points, right? We, we do it now even as believers because the old nature rises up. 
But when we were unconverted, before the Lord saved us, what did we think? The word of God was something that was foreign to us, strange to us, even distasteful to us. We didn't like what it said. We didn't want to know what it said. We knew that it would restrict and constrict our behavior, our thinking, our words, our actions, right? Our values would have to change. And it was distasteful to us. So in that way, we were also thinking the law is sin. Without actually using the phrase, we would actually believe that the law is sin. But it cannot have any any comfort or any residence in our mind. Because he says, may it never be. There is no way. For one, we notice that he has called this law good and various other words. For example, he said in verse 10, verse 10, this commandment which was to result in life, which was to result in life. Verse 12, the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Verse 13, therefore did that which is good become a cause of death for me? And 14, we know that the law is spiritual. The law is spiritual. It's good, holy, righteous, good, and spiritual. And even in verse 16, I agree with the law, confessing that it is good. How could anything emanating from God, God's nature, be evil, unrighteous, unholy? It can't. It has to be good. So the law isn't sin. If there's any sin, it's in us or the devil or the world, right? That's where the sin is, not in God. Then he's teaching us why it's there. Why is it there? Why is the law there? Why are the commandments there? Verse 7, on the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. You can't know about sin correctly unless you know what the law says. Isn't that true? We can't understand black unless you understand white. You can't understand number one or number two unless you understand number one. You can't understand the alphabet unless somebody teaches you the distinction between A, B, C, all the way to Z, right? That's the way life is. There's positive and there's negative, right? Everything is in contrast. Everything must be illustrated that way. Everything is not the same. Correct? So if everything isn't the same, that's the same in the spiritual world. We have the kingdom of light, the kingdom of darkness. We have God and we have Satan. We have good, we have evil, and so forth. And here we have the law, which is good and not sinful, and then we have sin. So how are we going to know the difference? You have to know the difference because the law has to be taught. Whether that law is taught, written in the heart, Romans 2, 14 to 16, or the law is taught in written words or the spoken word, we hear here in verse 7, for I would not have come to know about coveting if the law had not said you shall not covet. Those words explicitly in the Ten Commandments, such as Exodus 20, 
verse 17, Exodus 20 and verse 17, you shall not covet. When that is expressed in written words, it will also at times be expressed audibly, but also inaudibly because it's written in the heart. In either case, you don't know the, dis- the difference between sharing and being generous and being appreciative of what you own before God and others and covetousness, greed, hoarding, not being generous, correct? That those are the opposites. So we don't understand one without understanding the other. He's saying here, I would not have come to know about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. His point is exposure to what's right in the law compared to what I do or the way I look at that. That's what he's saying here. So what happens? Verse 8. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. Sin. Where is sin? In God? No. In God's word? No. Where is sin? In the world, the flesh, and the devil, right? That's where sin is. It takes opportunity through the commandment. It takes opportunity through the commandment, producing in me coveting of every kind. Remember, when the parents tell the child that a certain place is dangerous and they should not transgress the boundary to what is safe and what is dangerous, whether in the home or somewhere else. When the parents issue that command to the child, is the command a good command? Yes. The child hears it. The child understands it. There's no issue of misunderstanding. The child understands it. But what happens that wells up in the heart of the the child and then suddenly a burst of action. What does the child want to do? Wants to disobey that commandment of the parents. Wherever the parent said, don't go there, the child wants to go there. That's what sin does. So the problem is not the order, the instruction, the directions of the parents. That's not where the problem is. But the heart of the child becomes exposed when the child says, no, I'm going to do the opposite. Mom said, no, I'm going to do it anyways. That's where the problem is. That's what sin is. Another way to illustrate that, let's say a homeowner is washing and polishing uh, surfaces, dusting, uh, regular dusting of the house. But then... After the owner has finished dusting the house, the sun shines brilliantly in the house and exposes the surfaces that were just dusted. What does the homeowner do? He has massive disappointment. I thought I just cleaned. I thought everything was fine. But then when the sun shines on that surface, the homeowner sees it and then there's disappointment. Well, that's the way. Is the sun the problem? Is the sunlight the problem? No, because when the sunlight came, if initially the homeowner was anticipating a smooth, clean look 
to the surface. But then he discovers he didn't do such a good job or that dust or sin is inconquerable. <laughs> That's really what's going on. The, the light of the sun is not the problem. Just as the light of the word is not the problem. It is what's there in our nature. That's where the problem is. That's what he's saying here. Sin takes opportunity through the commandment. The commandment is the instruction or the commandment of the parent. The commandment is the light of the brilliant sun. That's the commandment. The problem is not in those sources. The problem is in the hearer, the human heart, where sin resides. So it wells up within us and produces coveting of every kind. So when God says you shall not covet, we say, no, I want what I want. I see what I want. I want what I want, and I'm going to get it. By hook or crook, I'm going to get it. It doesn't matter. I want it. So, verses 8 and 9. The end of verse 8 and verse 9. We must understand these two verses in context. The reason we must understand in context, especially in verse 9, verse 9 has been used to teach the denial of original sin. Verse 9 has been used to teach the denial of original sin. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. How would this be used? I was alive. I was alive. So we're not dead in trespasses and sins, Pelagians and Arminians say. We're not dead in trespasses and sins because it says I was alive, which means I have innocence, I have life, I have no guilt, I have no sin, no evil in me from conception until the so-called age of accountability. Age of accountability. And then you ask what that age is and you get different answers. The, the Mormons, they seem to think that they know, they say it's age eight. And that's when they baptize their children. Age eight. But no, the Bible teaches original sin. The apostles already argued that in Romans 5, 12 to 21, among many other places in Scripture. Romans 5, 12. Let's just begin at 5.12 and read 5.12 to 14. Original sin. Original sin means what? That since Adam sinned, not only did sin enter into the world and evil and death, and he experienced it, but all of his posterity experienced it. So that we were in Adam. So when Adam sinned, we sinned. His first sin. When he sinned, we sin. That's original sin. Call it inherited sin. Call it corporate sin. Call it original sin. These are different synonyms to describe the same fact, the same truth in Scripture. We are all guilty, all condemned, all have sin, evil, and death in us because of Adam. It doesn't mean we don't also commit actual sins. We do. Original sin and actual sins. So first... Romans 5.12, original sin. Therefore, just as through one man, 
sin entered into the world and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sin. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of Adam's offense, who is a type of him who was to come. Verse 12, through one man, sin entered into the world. The one man is mentioned in verse 14, Adam's offense. He is the one man. And then when sin came into the world, it did not exist before that. When it came into the world because of him, death also came into the world because death is the punishment for sin. Death through sin. No death before Adam's first sin, which means there's no evolution and no pre-existing ape-men creatures before Adam existed. Um, Cavemen, cave creatures, Neanderthals, those don't exist in Scripture and in history. No way. Well, he says death through sin, but was this only for Adam? Was it only guilt on Adam and punishment on him? No. Verse 12, And so death spread to all men because all sinned. He says, Because all sinned, death spread to all men. He means we all sinned when Adam sinned. He doesn't mean we all sinned just like Adam sinned because all of us, when we are created, are not put in a posh and lavish garden of Eden, right? We're not all placed there. We're not all given the same test when we come into existence. He's talking about when Adam did. Because he says in 14, 14, this death reigned between Adam and Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of Adam's offense. Everyone does not have the same opportunity as Adam, Adam and Eve, but death was there. Why was death there? Because we all sinned in him. Okay, so he's already taught original sin. He already teaches that we're all dead in trespasses and sins. Ephesians 2, 1. That's already been established in the early chapters of Romans. Romans 1, 18 to 5, 21. And even... To 7.13, he's been teaching it. 1.18 to 7.13, he's teaching this concept, this truth. So, what does he mean in verses, Romans 7, verses 8 and 9? What does he mean? He's talking about our perception of our goodness and righteousness in relation to the law And whenever the law convinces us that we are sinners, he's talking about our relationship to the law in terms of the way we look at it. And when we realize, no, when he says in verse nine, um, I was once alive apart from the law, he means he thought everything was fine with him between him and God. He had such an inflated view of himself, he didn't acknowledge his sin correctly, truly. 
He didn't do that. Remember, Paul was a Pharisee, and the Pharisees were self-righteous. They thought that they were fine and good, that they were prepared for the day of judgment, that there was nothing wrong with them, they were not hypocrites, and they loved to attack Christ, our Lord. They loved to attack Him, right? So, because Christ exposed their hypocrisy, so they attacked Him. And Christ also had a large following, and they didn't want that. They were jealous of the large following. So for those reasons, the Pharisees attacked Christ because Christ would testify of their deeds that they were evil. John 7, 7. Testify that their deeds were evil. John 7, 7. But they didn't want to admit that. They thought they were fine. They thought that they were alive. But when the commandment came and it exposed them and the Spirit worked in them, he's not speaking devoid of the Spirit because it says in verse 6, we serve in newness of the Spirit. So when the commandment was taught to them and the Spirit of God convinced them by this commandment that they are sinners, they realize the state of death that they have. They owned up to their death. They owned up to their sin and their evil. And they confessed to God and to one another. That's what he means. But when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. Okay? Let's go back to the parent-child illustration. It's the same thing there. The child has not committed a sin by disobeying his parents, yet when the parent says to the child, do not go over there. This is the boundary line. Do not cross it. Do not go to the other side. It's dangerous over there. When the command is issued, to that point the child is not dead in relation to that commandment. His sin has not become alive and risen to the surface when the command is issued by the parent. When does the child become dead in relation to that specific commandment? When he transgresses. When he transgresses, the sin becomes alive and he dies in relation to that commandment. Now the child is worthy of punishment because he disobeyed the parent. You see, that's the, the point that the apostle is making. It doesn't mean that the child never disobeys that the, up to that point or never after that, that the child never disobeys, that the child has uh, uh, no sin in his nature, that he has never uh, d- did something wrong to his siblings or anything like that, never disobeyed parents before that. It doesn't mean that, but in relation to that context, the child isn't dead yet, in relation to the commandment that the parent just issued. But when he does sin, he dies in relation to that commandment. That's what Paul's saying here in verses 8 and 9. For apart from the law, sin is dead. So it was there, it was dormant, it was dead, it was asleep, until the commandment came and then sin said, oh, I'm going to do the opposite. Then it became alive, and when it became alive... He says, I died. Verse 10. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved 
to result in death for me. The commandment which was to result in life. Does this not remind us of Leviticus Leviticus 18.5? Leviticus 18.5, do this and you will live. Which means that God says, this is what I command of you. If you do it, you will have life. That's the scenario. That is the test. If you do it, you will have life. But the problem is people think that because God issues a commandment, everyone who hears the commandment has the ability to carry it out. That's the problem. That's the problem that is the heresy in Pelagianism and Arminianism. They think that because there are so many commandments in the Bible, whether Old or New Testament, that because these commandments are there, obviously then the people who hear them must have the ability, must have the capability, must have the power, the strength in their will or free will to do what God says. That's what they falsely assume. Since God says do it, you must be able to do it. Otherwise, why would God tell you to do it? That that heresy fails to understand the power of sin, the condition of the human nature before God in relation to that sin, and they also fail to understand even in reality, in daily life, criminals are sentenced by judges to pay penalties, to obey commandments, laws, that they are unable to fulfill. Are we not criminals before the judge of heaven? Yes. So in our own life, let's say there's a criminal that deserves the the death penalty or life imprisonment. But the judge says, you have to pay two life times of imprisonment. Right? That happens sometimes. Not only your whole life, but double life. Double life sentence. Correct? Who's able to do that? What are we going to do? The criminal lives to be 80 years old? And then what are we going to do? Make sure he doesn't die for another 80 years? It doesn't happen. But the judge issued that command. It's a law, a sentence of death or imprisonment, that he's supposed to do that. But it's impossible to do. There's all kinds of things that way too. Even if you think about the laws of any nation, if you think about the local, municipal, county, state, federal laws, and even world laws of, that, that are on the books, there are millions of pages, right? Millions and millions of pages of laws. Do you think that the politicians who impose these laws on us actually believe we are able to carry out every single page of law, every single line of law on the millions of pages? No. But they issue them anyways, correct? They try to regulate us to death anyways, right? They themselves can't keep the laws that they enact. They know it's impossible. So when people say God doesn't do that, God does do it. It's all over the scriptures. It's all over the scriptures. He knows human nature, that we are unable to carry out his law. For example, Galatians 3.10. 
For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in this book of the law to perform them. Are we able to perform all things there? No. So we're under a curse. That means God issues commandments that we are unable to keep, which is verse 10. This commandment, which was to result in life, theoretically, hypothetically, proved to result in death for me. Actually, it it brings about our death. And why? Back to sin. Verse 11. For sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. Sin takes opportunity through the commandment. Okay, the commandment is issued. The hearer hears it and says, Aha, I hear what is expected of me, but I hate it. I don't want to do it. I will not obey it. I will disrespect it, and I'll do the opposite. Well, what brings about those kinds of thoughts and actions? Sin. So sin takes opportunity through the commandment. It deceives me, and through it kills me. Sin is deceptive, right? The deceitful nature of sin. Hebrews 3, 3, 12, and 13. Sin is deceitful. Hebrews 3. We'll actually... uh, Yes, we'll begin at verse 12. 12 and 13. Hebrews 3, 12. Take care, brethren, lest there should be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart in falling away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, lest any one of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We might be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. In Genesis 3.13, Eve admitted to God, the serpent deceived me and I ate. She admitted that to God. Good for her. The serpent deceived me and I ate. She admits it. We must note that because in 1 Timothy 2, the apostle says the same and critics of the apostle demonize him. Uh, 1 Timothy 2 1 Timothy 2 and verse 14, 2.14 on deception. It was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being quite deceived fell into transgression. Adam wasn't deceived in that he deliberately sinned. He understood the circumstances. He understood the setup. He understood that the serpent was framing them. He understood it all, and he went headlong and headstrong, brazenly into the sin. But the woman, Eve, she wasn't that way. She was hoodwinked. She was deceived. She was tricked. This is what happened to her. But the nature of sin is to do this to all of us. It is to deceive us, to trick us, to manipulate us, and bring about our death. He says, 
The sin deceived me and through it killed me. Deception produces death. Deception is the usual means of bringing about our death. That's why Satan is called a liar and a murderer from the beginning. John 8, 44. Lies and death, lies and murder, deception and death, they go hand in hand. This is the usual way of sin in the world. We have to, at times, deceive ourselves into thinking, it's not so bad. We're going to be just fine. I can practice a little here, a little there. No one's going to know. I will never be held accountable. On the day of judgment, everything's going to be fine. I'd rather have God judge me than you judge me. People say that. I, because they have a false confidence in the loving God and they don't understand His holiness and righteousness. People say things like that to justify their wicked actions in this life whenever someone's confront, confronting sin to, to another. They'll say, I'd rather have God judge me than you. Uh, I'll just deal with God, not you. They say things like that. They don't understand. Sin is consuming them. Sin is deceiving them into thinking that on the day of judgment, they will be just fine. And in fact, God's going to step aside and probably in heaven wash their feet. They have that kind of conception of God, that God is going to stoop to wash their feet on the day of judgment. And if they would be honest, even wash their rear end. That's the way they look at God. They really are that despicable and that hateful of God. They are that way. But no, we and sin produces death in us. God is not to be blamed. We are to be blamed for this. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.